Hello, forgotten cello music listeners. This is episode 37. Hi, my name is Aaron from Traveling Cello. The episode today is all about music in Germany in the 18th century. In the 17th century, the violoncello still occupied a very subordinate and modest position. At the beginning of the 18th century, however, there was already a great change. Before getting into the episode proper, I'd like to just say thank you very much for listening to my podcast, Forgotten Cello Music. Remember, you can leave a comment. You can also answer the questions that I pose from time to time and polls too. Go to Spotify. I believe that's the only place that you can answer them outside of the Anchor website. You could go to the Anchor website and leave a voice message too. If you'd like to support this directly, visit my paypal.me forward slash traveling cello link. You can also become a patron. Visit me at my Patreon account, Traveling Cello. There you can subscribe and support me for as little as $1 a month and keep this content coming at more regular intervals and more frequently too. Now on to the episode. Episode 37, Cello in Germany in the 18th Century. This is taken from The Violin Cello and Its History by Joseph Vasilevsky, found in Chapter 2, pages 68 through 87. It's the art of violin cello playing in the 18th century. Now before I read any quotes from the book, there are quite a number of cellists that are included in in this section about Germany and the cellists therein. But in all, once I tallied them up, there were 75 cellists named in the chapter. Not all the cellists named were born in Germany, but were employed there at length. Werner, but this is not the Werner that we're used to. Then we have Graziani, Danzi, Josef Reicher. Josef Reicher was the uncle of a well, more well-known composer, Anton Reicher. And then we come to Bernhard Romberg. He is quite a famous cellist that wrote a lot for the cello. Vasilevsky mentions him in this particular chapter because of the dates. He was born in the 1700s. But Vasilevsky does state that Romberg will be looked at in detail for the chapter on Germany in the 19th century. And that is because of the distinctive influence of his works that belong to the 19th century. Now at the very end of this section on Germany, Vasilevsky also lists 11 composers of the period. Two of these are well-known, C.P.E. Bach and Franz Josef Haydn. And of course, Haydn wrote two very famous cello concertos. But did you know that C.P.E. Bach wrote at least three cello concertos? And some big names have recorded those, like Stephen Isserlis, uh, Truls Merck, and some others too that are equally good. 
Then there are some lesser well-known names, Playel, Hofmeister, and Paul Reninsky. Here is a list of some cellists that I have picked out of the 75 mentioned in this section and that I have recorded works from. In this episode, I have uh, Johann Sebald Trimer. He was born in Weimar in the late 17th century, so late 1600s. He died in 1762. Then number two, Johann Georg Schettke, born in Darmstadt, 1740 to 1824. Three, Johann Baptist Baumgartner, born in Augsburg, 1723 to 1782. Number four, Alexander Uber, born in Breslau, 1783 to 1824. Um, and number five, Johann Gottfried Arnold, born in Niedernhall, 1773 to 1806. So maybe the question should be asked, why did I even choose these compositions? It seems a little bit random in a way. And, well, yes, in some ways it's a little bit random, but in other ways I looked at dozens of pieces that I could record, and upon reading through many of them, these came out as the most likable, the, the nicest, but also in terms of playability, because practice time is valuable, you know, and I don't have all that much of it. Well, it has been some time, four months or so, since the last episode using Vasilevsky's panoramic collage, the violoncello and its history. So I will include a swift overview of the history of the cello up to the 1700s, just to revisit what I looked at uh, four months ago, now almost five months. So it's a broad but choice selection of what the position of the cello looked like in Germany. Let's go directly to the text of the violoncello and its history. First, an overview of the scene in Germany, and then second, a look at the aforementioned cellists active in Germany. I will read a little bit from the preface and the introduction, and second, I will go to an overview of the scene in Germany, and third, a look at the aforementioned cellists active in Germany, so taking quotes directly from the book. If you're interested, I have decided to read some of these overviews in German as well because I think it's interesting and I like to practice my German. So I will put that at the end of the episode. Anybody wishing to listen to a, a few quotes in German, please skip to the end. Now, from the preface... This is from Vasilevsky himself. For my work, I have made use of the musical dictionaries extant, especially Ernst Ludwig Gerber's Old and New Musical Lexicon, as well as Fetis Biographie Universelle des Musiciens. That's just a little bit about where he's getting his information, not to mention that he was out in the field gathering information actively, too. Now on to the introductory section on the violoncello in the 18th century. 
of this time period specifically, Vasilevsky says, In the 17th century, the violoncello still occupied a very subordinate and modest position during the period mentioned, with very few exceptions. It was employed only as a bass instrument in the orchestra. At the beginning of the 18th century, however, there was already a great change. For Matheson says in his Neu eröffneten Orchestra, this appeared in 1713, the prominent violoncello, the bass viol, and the viola da spalla are small bass fiddles, that is to say viols, similar to the larger ones with five or six strings, on which can be played all kinds of quick things, variations and movements, much more easily than on the larger machines. By larger mas machines, Matason means the contrabasso. Starting on page 68 of the English edition, in the introduction, more specifics. So by the year 1680, the cello had already been introduced as an orchestral instrument in Vienna. Then by 1709, what is that, almost 30 years later, it was introduced in Dresden in the Royal Orchestra. So first we have it going through Austria and then making its way up that eastern portion into Dresden in Saxony. And then finally, around 1720, it finally made its way up into northern Germany, like Berlin and Schleswig-Holstein, you know, that area, Hamburg and stuff. There is evidence that the Duke of the Holstein Goldtorp had a cello in his court band. So there's the Schleswig-Holstein, that's famous for a big music festival in the summer. By the inference, it is likely that the cello was in wide use in other parts of Germany as well. I mean, for example, otherwise Johann Sebastian Bach would not have known about it. And since he wrote his six solo suites for cello between 1717 and 1724, he most certainly was acquainted with the instrument. Two of the earliest known Germans of a significant amount of importance making it into a two-volume music dictionary by Ernst Ludwig Gerber, 1746-1819. These two names of these cellists are Trimmer and Riedel. During the second half of the last century, the art of violoncello playing had already very extensively spread throughout Germany and had many more noteworthy representatives than in Italy and France. From page 74. As opposed to France and Italy, Germany called out more instrumental vigor in order to satisfy the need of good musicians from the numberless courts. In fact, more young men devoted themselves to the study of the violoncello in Germany than in any other country. This is from page 75. Also from 75, these distinguished men up to this period, with few exceptions, endeavored besides their practical work, to create by their compositions a literature for their instrument. They wrote concertos, sonatas, and works with variations in considerable numbers. These productions were substantially increased by other mu musicians who were not cello players. Yes, and I'd like to just pause and reflect on this for a moment, 
because this is what my entire project, Forgotten Cello Music, is about. These cello players, who were cellist composers, they wrote extensively for their instrument. When you go searching for cello music, most people think of a handful of composers, and they're not even cello uh, players, at least not, not their major instrument. But in this case, it's very intriguing that so many cellists did write. I mean, I don't know what happened to a lot of their compositions. Maybe they were lost because nobody wanted to play them or they didn't get published or what. Who knows? But on IMSLP, since so many people are uploading, you can find at least a good number of these uh, cellist composers and some of their works. And that's what this is all about. I go through and do just that. I read these uh, books, these historical books, and then go find what I can, um, either through IMSLP or otherwise. And continuing on with that, in that vein of creating for the cello, creating a literature for the cello, Vasilevsky continues, The greater number of these compositions, whether emanating from violin cello players or not, are interesting only insofar as from them may be gathered what position German violin cello playing held in the second half of the last century. Further, a universally current method for the manipulation of the fingerboard and also for bowing had indeed not yet been attained in either of the two countries. The testing in every way of the executive capabilities of the violoncello naturally followed, as well as discovering the various combinations for playing double stops, the formation of passages and ornaments, and the endeavor to develop and present them in a manner suitable to the nature of the instrument. This tedious work must on the outset have necessarily led to productions in which the question of imagination would not be taken into consideration. In fact, it is with few exceptions of very little value, and as further the figures and runs are antiquated, the compositions in questions can awaken no real sympathy. But these trial stages which cello compositions had to pass through were necessary in order to arrive at a literature of artistic worth. And again, I pause here to reflect. You know, in, in so many ways, he is, he is absolutely right. There is no question. There is a lot of music that is, it's not really that interesting. And I, I do pass over some music because it's just very badly written. And so it's, it's kind of difficult to make it interesting for others. So one rule of thumb is don't play it, at least as a soloist, don't play it if you are truly not interested in it and you think there's little worth to it. On the other hand, I'm in this project uh, neck deep and I feel like, well, it does have some worth, as Vasilevsky points out, it does have some worth in the fact that it shows us what people were doing, how they were thinking about cello writing and playing, and it can inform and really be interesting from a historical perspective. Wow, they wrote some 
really funny music, let's say. And it was very difficult to maneuver in in the the way that they wrote. Could be just crazy string crossings, it could be awkward runs. So it is with great interest and sincere intrigue and appreciation for a lot of these compositions that I now am turning and quoting some information about the cellist that I've selected to record. So it's just a handful of cellists as I mentioned. These names were fully unknown to me. The earliest cellist mentioned, the first name that comes up is Johann Sebald Trimmer. And he actually wrote quite a lot for cello. As Vasilevsky states, uh, Trimmer seems to have been one of the earliest proponents of the cello in Germany and who also composed a good deal for it. He wrote a set of six sonatas for solo cello and basso continuo, and these follow very nicely for the style of the period. Uh, from his Sonata Number no. 5 in B-flat major, the Largo and Giga Allegro movements are really first-rate examples of his ability to compose for the instrument. They're very finely put together. It has a wonderful um, structure to it, and the melodic lines work extremely well. They're very compelling, and I enjoy his music a lot. It would be fascinating to record uh, more of his sonatas. I think they really set a good example. Now I'm going to mention another name that I didn't get around to recording and it really came down to just not having enough time and wanting to get this episode out. But I thought Wolfgang Schindlöcker was worth noting and, and looking up and practicing. Um, this is a cellist and there's another Schindlöcker, a Philip, who was his uncle. They were, so they were part of the same family. They both played cello. Something that caught my eye were a set of three duets for two cellos. And uh, the reason is they're short and playable. Each one has a bit of a uh, funny sound to it. So I, I think this would have been a great example of they're searching for ways to make the cello work to to flesh out techniques and how you can write for the instrument. Now next, this is quite an interesting fellow, Johann Georg Schetke. Uh, Vasilevsky spends one full page on this Schetke. He was a gifted student and he eventually left Germany after his parents passed away and immigrated first to London, England, where he ran into Johann Christian Bach, who was a patron of his. He helped him get established, but then soon after he moved to Edinburgh, Scotland, where he lived until he died. That's a funny sentence. He remained there until his death. Uh, he did compose quite a lot and was known through those accessible pieces. One number in particular that interests me is a set of 12 duets for two violoncellos. These 
are prefaced by some observations and rules for playing the instrument. And this, again, you know, there's so many things that I've run into that would be great little side projects, little studies. And when I was reading uh, through these observations, it really, it came, it came to me like it, it has its place, just like the Broderip and Wilkinson cello treaties from the late 1700s. It has its place in this, in the world of cello. It can really do a lot to inform us as to what was going on and possibly even help with performance practice if you're into period playing and recreating that sort of sound. So this is Opus 7. In the duets, just as it states in the title, Shetki had a scholastic aim in view, yet they can be scarcely called a violoncello school. And that's true. I mean, it's, I don't even know why he bothers to point out that it's not a, a violoncello school. It certainly is not. It's just a set of 12 duets with a little preface, you know, a couple pages worth of writing. Uh, that being said, they really are good duets. He wrote them very nicely. They've got good melodic content, and the harmonies work extremely well. There are just two movements for each, a slow and a fast. All 12 of these duets serve an excellent purpose in giving the upper beginner or lower intermediate student material to learn and to hone uh, some techniques that are, you know, if you have to play faster, and of course ensemble playing. This is good study music, you know, they give some students one movement here, a movement there, play it in a student recital, and even choose some of the more uh, smooth sounding ones for a regular recital. Next, Johann Baptist Baumgartner. He wrote a number of compositions for cello, and he even wrote an instruction book for violin cello. And this one I just haven't looked into yet. But again, it really brings out the fact that people were busy trying to establish the cello as a major instrument. He wrote a work with a curious title, Duet for One Violoncello. So I've recorded an excerpt from it. It's actually a few. Next is Alexander Uber. The most interesting fact about Uber is that he was regularly in the same space as the composer Karl Maria von Weber. This is because his father played host to two weekly concerts, in which one featured orchestra and the other was for quartets and quintets. Uber wrote a smattering of compositions for the cello, of which only four were published. I've chosen one of his caprices from a set of six, and that first caprice is in G minor. I've recorded the entire thing. It turned out much better than I expected the actual composition itself. I think caprice number one is worth looking into. It's worth studying. 
last, I have chosen Johann Gottfried Arnold. He had already attracted notice by the age of eight. While he met success in his native place, Niedernhall, in the Wurttemberg, his career didn't go much further as a soloist at this point. He studied with great zeal and studied with several cellists while attempting to make himself known. He had the great opportunity to hear and also learn from Bernhard Romberg while visiting Hamburg. Soon, Arnold was established in the orchestra in Frankfurt am Main, where he also taught private cello lessons. He was regarded as a fine soloist. His work, Six Themes with Variations for Two Cellos, is a really good example of the prevailing compositional method of utilizing the theme and stretching the composition out to some length through variations. Though Uber's creations are pleasant, they don't push the boundaries of, of the variations. They, they really stick very close to the tonal center of the theme and fairly close to the the theme itself, the melody itself. And by way of context, I have also decided to record an excerpt of the Jean-Louis Duport exercise number seven in G minor. Uh, he was a Frenchman, but he was employed in Germany for quite some time. It is a very well-known etude, and any cellist will recognize it immediately. But I do hope that you understand that it is for context, and I wanted to show what was happening with major composers in some way as well. Well, that was it for the English part. Uh, now, if you want, you can skip ahead to the very end, even I'm putting the, the German translations even after the outro music, so it's the very last thing on this episode. It's a very long episode, but it has been an enjoyable episode for me to do. Remember, you can send me a tip at uh, paypal.me forward slash cello. Or you can go to my Patreon and you can subscribe for as little as $1 a month. You could go up to $30 a month. Um, I, I have two subscribers there now, so thank you very much to those two subscribers. And uh, I've gotten some tips through PayPal. Thank you so much for your tips. I really appreciate those. Uh, every little bit helps me to... Uh, reach my goal of spending more quality time with these projects and getting this finessed for everybody that's listening so that it becomes more interesting, that it becomes more fluid. And who knows? Mild thought here, but maybe I could even employ another person to help me with editing and getting these things uh, even smoother. So thanks so much. Remember to play more forgotten cello music. As I said earlier in the episode, 
I will be re-reading, but in German, some of the overview of what was happening for cello in the 18th century, including some of the preface. Also, ich fange an, auf Deutsch zu lesen. Im Vorwort zur ersten Auflage sagt Wasilewski, für meine Arbeit sind von mir die vorhandenen Musiklexika, hauptsächlich aber Gerbers altes und neues Tonkünstlerlexikon, soweit für die Biografie Universelle des Musiciens benutzt worden. Weiter schreibt er im Teil des Violoncello im 18. Jahrhundert. Das Violoncello nahm im 17. Jahrhundert noch eine sehr untergeordnete und bescheidene Stellung ein. Es wurde während des angegebenen Zeitraumes mit ganz vereinzelten Ausnahmen nur als einfaches Bassinstrument im Orchester benutzt. Zu Beginn des 18. Jahrhunderts war dies aber schon wesentlich anders, denn Matheson sagt in seinem 1713 erschienenen, neu eröffneten Orchestre. Der hervorragende Violoncello, die Bassa Viola und Viola di Spalla sind kleine Bassgeigen in Vergleichung der größeren mit fünf auch wohl sechs Seiten, worauf man mit leichterer Arbeit als auf den großen Maschinen Kontrabass allerhand geschwinde Sachen, Variationen und Manieren machen kann. Seite 51. Weiter Teil 2 Deutschland. Wasilewski sagt hier, das Violoncello hatte als Orchesterinstrument, wie wir sahen bereits um Jahr 1680, seinen Platz in der Wiener und um 1709 in der Dresdener Hofkapelle gefunden. Gegen 1720 war es auch schon bis in das nördliche Deutschland gedrungen. Es muss aber dieses Streichinstrument zu der nämlichen Zeit in Deutschland schon größere Verbreitung gefunden haben, weil sonst Johann Sebastian Bach schwerlich auf den Gedanken gekommen wäre, seine zwischen den Jahren 1717 bis 1724 entstandenen Solosonaten für dasselbe zu komponieren. Und jetzt weiter. Die allermeisten dieser Kompositionen gleich viel oder dieselben von Violoncello-Spielern herrühren oder nicht, gewähren nur insofern noch ein Interesse, als aus ihnen zu entnehmen ist, auf welchem Standpunkt sich das deutsche Violoncellspiel in der zweiten Hälfte des 18. Jahrhunderts befand. Eine allgemeingültige Normierung der Applikatur des Griffbrettes 
und auch der Bogenführung war freilich weder in dem einen noch in dem anderen beider Länder schon erreicht. In der Tat ist derselbe mit ganz vereinzelten Ausnahmen sehr geringwertig. Und da überdies die Figurationen und Läufer veraltet sind, so vermögen die in Rede stehenden Kompositionen im Allgemeinen keinen wirklichen Anteil mehr zu erwecken. Aber die Versuchsstadien, welche die Cellokomposition durchmachte, waren notwendig, um zu einer Literatur von Kunstwert zu gelangen. Seite 97 As a byword, reading things in the original German, as a non-native German speaker, of course I feel little. On the other hand, uh, German is very intriguing to me and I always have enjoyed listening to and speaking German and reading German. But I think it offers some value because it helps us remember that the original work was written in German. And it, in some ways, it is a bit of a tribute or a, a way of saying thank you, even though he has passed on so many years ago. But to the German speakers out there, I'm so happy that there were many Germans writing historical works that can fill in our history and give us so much pleasure in discovering things anew. Also, danke. <laughs>